I am the bread of life. And so uh, what we're doing this fall is just going through, at this point, those statements as we looked at other unique parts of John's gospel. We're going to look at the rest of these I am statements. And so this morning we come to the second one, which is found in both chapter 8 and 9. And we'll be spending most of our time uh, in chapter 9 this morning. We will actually come back to chapter 8 at the end of our series. But the, this morning will be in chapter, um, if, you, if you look at the printed word on your bull, in your bulletin, if I can find it here. John chapter 8 is where this all starts, and we hear uh, this first I am statement in the first verse, and then we're going to move over to chapter 9. We'll, I'll just read verses 1 to 7, but we'll be looking at this whole account um, this morning. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. It's found in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 1, and then also moving over to chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Actually, that's wrong. Let me back up. This is why it's always good to have your Bible. I asked for verse 12. It's probably my fault that I put a, a misprint in there. We're going to start at verse 12. Where Jesus says, this is where the story begins. Again, Jesus. And the Mount of Olives is important this morning, guys. So let's not discount that. Very important. Let's start in verse 12, and then we'll move over to chapter 9. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then moving over to chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. As he passed by... He, being Jesus, saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, and he was born, or, or that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool, uh, the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, and we ask now at this time that you would, by your Spirit, do a miracle, and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts to receive your gospel, that such as a seed goes out into good soil and grows and produces a fruit, that your word would now come to us, that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, so that we too might change, that your word being driven deep into the soil of our hearts would produce a fruit and you would do these things for your glory alone, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, my wife, uh, whose name's Ada, if you haven't had a chance to meet her, my wife will say to me, um, she says, I can't see. And where this comes from, and I don't know if anybody can relate to this in this room, is I, I have this problem when I can't find something, according to her, that she knows where it is, but I'll go look for it, and I can't find it, and then she'll come and look for it, and they'll be right there. 
And I think this is a conspiracy towards me. I think some of y'all maybe are involved in this, actually. But I could be looking for my keys, and she could say, they're in the drawer in the kitchen, and I'll go to the drawer, and I promise you, I'll go back a second time, because I know I've got to at least go back a second time before I go back to her, usually angry, because it's her fault at this point. They're not there. And I kid you not, she will go to that drawer, and she will pull out my keys. I can't see, y'all. I can't. And this is not just, hasn't been going on since I've been married. This is actually uh, true for me growing up. My, my mom would say the same if she were with us here this morning. Um, I don't know what it is. Maybe some of y'all can relate to that. I, I can look for something. And, and now it's sort of become comical because I know when she sends me into the basement or even my kids are asking me to help them find a brush, do you really want to ask me? <laughs> it could be right there. And I just can't see it. Now, I, I will say Knowing is half the battle, right? Being aware of this is half the battle. Um, but that, that's what's true for me. Um, in, in this text, as we just read, Jesus comes across somebody who truly can't see, um, and he's blind, and Jesus heals this person, and it's in connection with that sign or miracle that Jesus gives us his second I am statement, that I am the light of the world. But what's this passage is primarily about are, are how uh, this boy, how this boy responds to this miracle, but how this, uh, how this other group, the Pharisees, respond to this miracle that we'll see. That they are unaware that they cannot see, though they think they can. And what I want us to see this morning as we look at this I am statement is what light is actually doing uh, as Jesus, who is that light, who is that truth, is it's coming in and it's doing two things. It's bringing freedom to us that we'll see but it's also bringing division. And what we ultimately see as Jesus is the light of the world that comes to us is that none of us, none of us can see unless Jesus by his grace cures us as it, as it were, as he changes our sight, spiritually speaking, from being blind to being able to see him and his grace and how this changes all of us. And so that's what we'll see as we look at this this morning. I, I did have three points for us this morning, but uh, maybe this is God at work for you that I would eliminate one of those points. And so we just have two, right, that we see the freedom uh, that light brings. And we want, I want to see the division that light brings in this text. And then uh, a couple points of application as we learn what it means for Jesus to truly come to us blind people and give us sight that we may see him. So let's take the first one, the freedom that, the, that this light, the freedom that Jesus brings to us. Uh, there isn't too much hidden in this account as we start here in verse 1. Um, as Jesus passed by, the text says, he saw a man blind from birth, right, straight out of the gate. And the disciples' response, as you notice, was to ask who sinned. Is it this man or his parents? And, and it, there was, as there can be today, this belief that our circumstances in life are either a result of some sin that we've committed in the past or something maybe that happened to us in a past life. And so the, the, the Near Eastern uh, belief of karma is floating around sometimes as it does even in our own culture. But the Bible never teaches this, right? The Bible never teaches about karma, doesn't believe in it, doesn't teach about this idea that if somebody, something wrong has happened to somebody, it's because of some sin of them or their parents or in some past life. And we see this really quick, quick, quickly as Jesus in verse 3 says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus proceeds here to speak of the urgency of the moment and to do these works. And with that, he then spits on the ground as he approaches this boy. 
and he mixes it with the dust, and he makes this mud, and he puts it in the boy's eyes, and he tells the boy to go wash. Now, I love the earthiness here as we slow down and just look at this, right? The earthiness of the text here. Who, who but Jesus would you say, yes, please hawk a loogie on the ground, right? Mix it with some dust and just rub that all in my eyes, right? I, I don't know if he's grinning as he's doing this. You know, we, we've got to, you know, there, there's, there's a lot going on here. I don't know why he uses uh, his spit. I don't know why he uses the dust. There isn't any consensus about that. The point is, is this is what he does, this is what he does, is he takes it and he rubs it in the boy's eyes and he tells the boy to go wash and the boy comes back with his sight restored. Now, as we saw last week with the feeding of uh, the 5,000, this, this bringing sight to Jesus or to this blind person is a sign or a miracle as the feeding of the 5,000 was. And as signs do, what they point us to something. And so this sign is what? It's pointing us to something. It's connected to Jesus' statement of being the light of the world. Um, it was just a reminder about signs, right? We said last week that if you were driving by a sign that said steep cliff ahead, right? That sign is not the reality. What is the reality is what is ahead, which is the steep cliff. And so if you drive on past that sign and drive off the cliff, Right, you missed the sign. So signs are there to point us to the reality. And Jesus is performing these signs in John, um, the feeding of the 5,000, and, and then here, bringing sight to a blind man, because it's pointing us to the reality of who truly gives us sight, and that is Jesus. And so just as there is this, this physical uh, sign or miracle, it always points to a spiritual reality. And so just as this boy is blind, right, what, what, what the text is telling us is that we come into this world, as the text says, this boy is born blind. It's not a detail that, that was just sort of, you know, unintentional. It's a very intentional detail. We come into this world spiritually blind. And so it's in that context that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And light is often synonymous with the word truth, especially in John's gospel. And in this way, what Jesus is saying is that as he says that I am the light of the world, is he saying I am both the source of truth and I am the revealer of truth. Right? I'm the source of truth. I'm the revealer of truth. You know, think of a flashlight, kids in the dark, right? That, that flashlight is both the source of that light, if, as, as it were, but it also is the, is the revealer of what is going on, that light shines on. This is what Jesus means when he says that he is the light of the world. And as the source of this truth and the revealer of this truth, it is him and him alone who is able to bring sight to the blindness of our hearts. Adding to this, as I said, that John gives us, uh, which is uh, this detail of, it being, of, of this boy being blind since birth, um, what Jesus is saying is that all of us come into the world this way. There, isn't, there aren't some of us in this room that, you know, we just got dealt a bad hand and we just don't see like we're supposed to, kind of like car keys in a kitchen drawer. Spiritually, all of us come into the world this way and it's only Jesus who can give us this sight. And what I want us to see in this first point is that Jesus, as the light of the world, when he comes into our life, it actually brings freedom to us. It brings freedom into our lives. Now, there's a lot of things that this light does, but I want us to look at, for this first point, how it brings freedom into our lives. And there is no better illustration for what I mean by that than to look at what it means for a blind person to then be able to see. Just think about that for a second. 
And there might be some people in here who have actually experienced some of that a little bit. You know, maybe, maybe you have had bad eyes and then you went and got a surgery and now you can see better. But just think about someone actually being physically blind, not being able to see, not being able to go do things, not being really in charge of their own life, and then all of a sudden having that sight, that the freedom that that would bring to you, the freedom that that would bring to that person. But there's something else here, though, that we've got to recognize, and that is, to be clear, freedom that Jesus brings is not the freedom of autonomy, Okay, let's make that clear too. It's not the freedom just to go about your life and do what it is that you want to do. It isn't the freedom for this boy to now go and do whatever he wants. That's actually not how the Bible defines freedom. Freedom in the Bible, believe it or not, is actually and always found in doing or living inside of the will of God. When, when, what does God say to Adam and Eve? Don't eat of this tree, but you can partake of everything else. God isn't micromanaging his people in that scene for them to, should we go to this tree or that? He just says, just don't go to this one. And you are living inside the will of God if you don't go to this one. You can go partake of everything else. That's freedom because it's inside the will of God. This is what freedom is in Scripture, and this is what the light of the world comes and it does. As truth to us, it gives us true freedom. And I want to illustrate this by, by, in, in two ways. I want you to think of your shoulder. I've heard this illustration growing up. I, I don't know if you have, and it is so simple and so good. I hope, it, I hope it's the same for you. If not, we've got another one coming right behind it. I want you to think about your shoulder for a second as we think about freedom and as we think about autonomy, which is a big topic for us today in our culture. And I want you to think about your shoulder saying this to you this afternoon. You know what? I am tired of this life. I'm tired of you. I'm tired of having to be in this socket, as it were. And I'm just ready to go live my own life right now, and I'm out of here. And then that moment just pops itself right out of the socket. Right? It's a little ridiculous, but you just got to stay with me. Is your shoulder free? Is it free? It, it, It might seem free, it might, in a, you know, a self-autonomous way, but is it really free? Can it actually go do what it wants to do at this point? Because the reality is, is that it's just going to hang there, and you're going to be in a lot of pain. See, only when it sees and it knows what, what it's actually been created for, to live and to operate within the confines of the socket, is it truly free to live. Does it experience the freedom that it was designed for? Again, freedom in the Bible is not autonomy. It is, it is freedom. Uh, freedom is always found in doing or living inside the will of God. Where we see who we belong to, we see who created us, and we see who we live for. How he has designed our life to go with the grain of this world, if you will. That's Freedom. By the time we get to the end of this account in chapter 9, what is the boy doing? He's not running around living whatever life he wants to live. He's worshiping. Verse 38. Yes, Lord, I believe, and he worships. It's the only place in John where we actually have confirmation of somebody saying and doing this all in the same scene. In other words, he found rest in Christ which among other things means he submitted his life to the will of God to say he worshiped. It doesn't just mean that he started going to church on Sunday, although that's a part of it. 
Worship is, in one sense, everything that you do Monday through Sunday. Because it's who you belong to. It's who you are submitting your life to. It's who's living in you wherever you go. Again, the freedom in life is found right, in this communion with God, living with him as he calls us to, which is living inside of his will. At the same time, when Jesus opens our eyes, we are also, and this is, this is another aspect of this freedom, we're also able to stop living for ourselves and actually start serving other people, as silly as it sounds, right? My shoulder living its best life now cannot serve you one bit, right? And that's, that's the, that's the stain of selfishness in this world, especially in our culture as we, we prize so much individuality, right? And it's a good thing, be who you are. The Bible calls us to something different, and we actually see this really well in this illustration. Interesting enough that for this person, right, this shoulder, as it were, to, to be living the life that they want to live, it actually prohibits the service of other people. John Newton, who penned the words to the song Amazing Grace, the hymn Amazing Grace, and who also helped lead, right, the abolition of slavery in Great Britain was, was also a man, as you probably know if you've read anything about his story, who owned slaves himself in England. He was a slave trader, a slave owner in the 18th century. And it wasn't until his conversion, as the story goes, that he saw the evils of his ways and then he worked towards the abolition of the slave trade in Great Britain, which with the help of another Christian, William Wilberforce, as the story goes, as you know, in 1807, that was accomplished. Newton would die that December, but he got to see it come to fruition. But Newton records this in one of his writings, it will always, always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. See, people fought to abolish slavery for many reasons, even in the States as well, but we also know that they didn't fight necessarily because they thought slavery was wrong. There are other reasons for them to do this. Newton shows us the power of actually being able to see, but also the freedom that led him into not just for himself and living as God desires, but what for the sake of others, as God desires. It's just not good for ourselves, right, as we learn what freedom is personally, but it actually gives us the ability to serve others because what the truth, what will set us free. John says this back in chapter 8 that we'll get to later on this fall, where Jesus says in verse 32 of chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Again, it's not freedom of onto, to, to, towards autonomy. It's freedom in, uh, in Christ, but freedom in the way that you've been created to live and to serve and to love other people, to know how to do that. That's what's in view here. When Jesus says, though, I am the light of the world, he is saying, I am both the source of this truth and the revealer of this truth. truth. And the first thing that God's truth does is it brings freedom to our lives. It comes from God and it reveals his truth, his will to us in the same freedom we see in this boy is the same freedom that we experience when our hearts, too, go from being blind to being able to see. Okay, this is the first point. 
what the light brings. It brings freedom. Second, though, I want us to see the, the, the division that this light brings. And this is really verses 8 to 34. And this dialogue between the Pharisees and this boy and the Pharisees and his parents. Because what happens here is the Pharisees don't believe this boy, but they also don't believe his parents. And they don't believe the boy again when they interview him again. And so they, they, they kick him out. They cast him out. There's a natural consequence to light and truth, which is what John's point is here. And the consequence to this truth coming into the world, as Jesus has said over and over, is that it divides. That it divides. And the Bible doesn't hide this reality. In fact, it warns us of it, and it tells us to expect it. That what is truth and freedom for one is really darkness and death for another. After this healing and sign, verse 8 to 34 chronicles the response of Jesus' healing, and what we see is division. Look with me at verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so John carries out the implications of this division through two parties, the boy and the Pharisees. And so the first thing here is that we want to see, I want you to see the progression of belief as a response to Jesus that we see in this boy. For the boy, we notice this positive progression, if you will, of seeing who Jesus is and how this leads from blindness to worship. First in verse 11, we read, if you want to look at it, that the boy refers to Jesus as what? He's just a man. This man called Jesus, made mud, and he anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. But by verse 17, he sees that he's more than a man, right? He tells the Pharisees who are questioning him, no, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Second, by verse 27, though, he doesn't stop there. The boy is now suggesting that Jesus is someone worthy of following when he answers the Pharisees who have come to question him a second time saying, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? In other words, he is saying to them, as one scholar writes, that Jesus is actually fit for following. And this would carry extra weight in this day, because what that meant is that you've been schooled and have the knowledge of a group like the Pharisees. And this is what makes them so angry. But from here, the boy then makes a massive leap, saying in verse 33 that Jesus must be sent by God. If he weren't, how could he do these things? And then finally, this progression concludes for John in verses 35 to 38, where the boy's belief leads to worship, as we already noted. This is the first response, the progression of belief. Before I move on here, I think it's important to point out that this is, for the most part, the majority of us. This is the majority of us in how we come to faith in Christ. Not all of us, but it is for the most part progressive. While there are many as well who would say, you know, I just, I woke up one morning and it was like the light just came and hit me. Everything fell into place. That's, that's, that is a story. But for many of us, it doesn't happen like that. There's this progression. There are these steps as we 
investigate Christ, as we grow in our faith, as we wrestle with our doubts. Tim Keller calls this the—we the, go through many or several many conversions before we come to full-blown faith and worship. And it's not saying this is objective either. It's just saying this is just what happens to many of us. And some of these many conversions can be, you know, is Christianity actually rational? That's the way you think. Those are the hurdles. Those are the barriers that you've got to get around. So you've got to investigate that. And as you unravel those questions in your mind, right, that's a mini conversion that leads to greater faith. For, For others, it might be, you know, is Christianity really safe? Because I grew up in the church and I got burned by the church. My family got burned by the church. I'm out of here. I don't have anything to do with it. And so as, as, as Jesus continues, right, to tug on your heart, right, you have sort of this dichotomy now all of a sudden between Jesus and the people of God, but you can't let him go. So you have to investigate. You have to pursue and continue to find out, like, wait, is this a community safe? That's a mini conversion. Those are the barriers that you might go through. For others, it could be just Christian community in general. Can I see myself belonging to this group of weird people? And I'm so glad you can, so glad you can laugh at that. We are weird. But that's the community of God. And all of these, as I said, Keller writes, are many conversions that Jesus, the light, takes us through. And it's by his grace that he does this. You see, it's easy for us to be around the church and just assume that everyone here woke up, had all of their theology in line, have no questions, no doubts. I have my kids even ask, Daddy, you don't seem to have any problems with Christianity. It's not true, but I don't tell them about them. Maybe I should. And I think it's worth us saying that this is true for majority of us in this room, that we don't need to be thinking, right, that my conversion experience doesn't look like this person's. Because all that does is lead to further questioning and doubting whether or not I truly am a believer. And so this is why the Bible never makes an objective claim about what conversion looks like. It is actually truly subjective in many ways. But all of us, right, no matter what our story is, all of us, when light shines in, can't undo that. What that means is, is that you've seen Jesus. And wherever you are in your faith journey, right, whatever you're walking through, like the questions you have, the doubts you have, the conflicts with the church, whatever it is, right, there's always that one thing that, that you find yourself coming back to, and it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And it's exactly what we hold on to as this boy holds on to in verse 25, 25 when he's actually being questioned and he knows that this interrogation means that he can be cast out of the community of God's people, which in fact ends up happening. He says, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And once you see, friends, you can't unsee. It is important for Christians to be honest about this progression that God takes us through. Jesus knows what you need when you need it. And if we start putting objective criteria on conversion experience, we will just lead people down a path wondering if they truly are Christian. And this is the problem with the charismatic movement. And the promise of second blessings like speaking in tongues to prove that you are truly saved. But I digress, right? This is the progression of belief as a response to Jesus that we see in this boy. And that we hopefully are are willing to share and talk about in our own lives as people who are only being able to see by the grace of God to begin with. But second, we see the progression of disbelief as a response to Jesus as well. 
right, where the boy travels down this road of belief. Don't miss what's going on side by side. This group of the Pharisees here do the opposite. They move further, actually, towards disbelief. First in verse 16, if you look at it, they say that Jesus is not from God. And then in in verse 18, they question the miracle altogether. So they call the boy's parents to inquire if the boy was truly blind in the first place. This progresses to the Pharisees saying that Jesus is a sinner in verse 24. (laughs) To arrogance as to, or sorry, to ignorance as to who Jesus is at all by verse 29. Mass confusion. They say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, we do not know where he comes from. Finally, with a touch of irony, it is the Pharisees who are pronounced blind and in sin in verse 41. What's what's John showing us here? Truth divides. Jesus, Jesus divides. Light divides. Scriptures are very clear about this. Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And who is Jesus telling this to? His disciples, Christians, the church. In other words, he's telling them what to expect because of his coming into this world, for this is what truth does. That is, Jesus is the one who will divide like light into darkness. It's a consequence of his coming into this world. As Bruce Millen writes, Jesus did not come specifically and primarily to condemn or to affect damning judgment. He came primarily and specifically to save sinners in this lost and fallen world, but his coming results both in salvation and in judgment. What this means is, as Christians, you don't actually have to help with this division. It will happen naturally. I think that's being missed a little today for us. Jesus is not asking you to create this division. Jesus is telling you that by virtue of following him, division will come upon you in your life because some will respond to this light, some will respond to this truth like this boy, and some will not like these Pharisees. And for me, and I hope this is true for you, this division, it it should be hard for all of us. It should be hard for all believers. It's hard for me. I don't want to be set against my parents. I don't want to be set against my friends. I want everyone to live in peace and be together for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Like that's, That's what I want. But that's not what Jesus says is the case here. And so where this leads me as a believer is I have to trust in him. And in the end, he will make it right. And not by my measure or standard, but by his alone. And this also means as Christians, I have to be content then to have Jesus and no other. And this is perhaps the hardest part for some, that I can't have Jesus as long as my parents are with me too. I can't have Jesus as long as my wife and kids are with me too. Jesus must be above all of them. This is what it means to follow him, to take up our cross. 
And so one application before we leave this point is that this drives and creates in us a people of lament. And one of the things that we're going to see in just a second as we land this plane is that as the light comes into us, it is not truth or knowledge that puffs us up. It's actually truth that humbles us because of what we begin to see. But as we realize that the vision that we all have experienced in this life because of being a follower, what becomes of us of being a follower of Jesus, one of the things this should cause the church to do is lament, which is to pray for those who are lost, not to look down upon them, right? to, to create in us this sorrow, to cry out, how long, O Lord, and to pray and to ask that God would have mercy on your friends, have mercy on your family, have mercy on your enemies even, just as Jesus has done for you. This is the second point, the division. So we've seen the freedom that Jesus brings. We see the light, the, the, the freedom that brings, the division that it brings. And lastly, I, I, I want to jump to a, a point of application by way of this last point of what it means to, to lament and how uh, this builds in us a posture of humility. What Jesus shining his light on tr of truth, sorry, on us should be doing as we grow in him, as we should be developing by God's spirit, we should be seeing this as a, as a fruit even, right? his humility being grown and manifested in us. That is, if our eyes have been opened, which they have, to see not only the truth of who Christ is as the light of the world, but we see more and more our need for him in the first place, and this produces then this humility, gospel humility and not pride that can well up because we see that Jesus' movement towards us is what? It's all grace. Right? Like this boy who has been blind since birth. <laughs> Nothing is changing unless Jesus enters that circumstance. And I would add here that Jesus did not have to heal this boy. Right? And he certainly doesn't have to come looking for him after he is cast out by the religious leaders of the day at the end of this text. But as Jesus does, he comes looking for him. He comes looking for us who are doomed to be cast out with the Father's presence because of our sin. But he does come looking because that's the kind of God that he is. His actions are always grace to us. Having our eyes opened as Christians reminds us the saying that Jesus didn't have to heal me too. And that's where that spirit of humility is cultivated within us that begins to lament for those who aren't seeing the light, that we would cry out and pray that mercy would be given to them as it has been given to me. But it's also a humility that, that, that grows out of the knowledge that God didn't have to do this to me either. But he did. As he says in this passage, I came so that those who do not see may see. That's everybody. That's everybody. But those who may see, those who claim they see, right, that they may become blind. And those that would claim to see this morning are those who would say, I don't need Jesus. I see fine. I don't need him to open the, my heart, right, see his truth. That's those people. But for those uh, who can't see, those are the ones he, he has come and so I ask the question, how is the knowledge of God, the truth that Jesus brings into your life, right, how is it shaping you? How is it producing uh, humility in your life? Or is it moving you towards a posture of pride? And how is it leading you to see others and to care for them? 
One area I'll gently draw attention to is how Christians can sometimes react towards unbelievers in this world. Christians must stop looking at the world or non-Christians as, they, uh, as if they just need to get their act together, as if just they need to, to get to church and start living right. And I can, I can have that attitude towards them just the same. In other words, the church has got to stop, though, asking people who can't see to see. Do we recognize that this morning? It is asking people to be sanctified before they are justified to use the correct theology. They can't see. And neither could you until Jesus had mercy on you and opened your eyes. This must change our posture towards the unbelieving world. Not anger or pride, but humility. The kind that says, I was just like you, but Jesus had mercy on me. Let me pray for you. Because apart from God's common grace, people without Jesus are doing exactly what you would be doing if Jesus didn't have mercy on you and open your eyes to him. Is the light of the world growing in us a posture of humility towards others? Because to have eyes, our eyes open to his grace, which is really what this passage is about, is to grow in humility because we begin to see our own sin. We begin to see how Jesus didn't need to come to us, but he does. At the same time, as we see our sin, though, what is happening, the cross is getting bigger. The cross is getting bigger, and as our sin gets messier and messier, messier, the cross gets bigger and bigger. Is that happening in your life? Is the cross getting bigger for you because you're seeing more of your sin? This is the, the result of Jesus opening our eyes. Are you only able to see the sin of those around you? Dear friends, light doesn't just come into our eye, into our lives to enlighten us. That is not the gospel. Light comes into our life to transform us, to change us. How is that happening in your life? How is that transforming you? Where are you seeing growth in grace? Because it is only the grace of Jesus that has the power to change us. Like a boy who was blind to now being able to see. And where do we see that grace for us this morning? We always see it in its fullest, fullest extent at the cross for us. This is where I'll leave us before we come to the table this morning where Jesus substituted himself for you so that what truly casts you out of the Father's presence, which was your sin, right, is it's wiped clean because of Jesus and it brings you now into fellowship with him. Look briefly again at how this chapter ends. I've alluded to it a couple times. The boy is not believed by the Pharisees. In fact, he is cast out or excommunicated from the community. This would have huge implications for his family as well. To be cast out like this wasn't uh, you being removed from the presence of leaders. It would mean that you were cut off from all of the benefits of that community. In short, this boy and his parents, which is why the parents respond the way they do in that text, if you go back and read it this afternoon, They are, in effect, aliens. They're aliens. But at the cross, what you deserved, which was to be cast out, which was to be, be, be the alien that our sin has created in us, Jesus received that. He became that alien. He became the one who was, what, cast out for you so that you could be brought in and belong to God forever. That's the grace that we're talking about. Because at the cross, what you deserve, Jesus got At the same time, what you got at the cross is what only Jesus deserves. 
which is to have, be in, in the full and clean presence of the Lord, right? to be righteous in his sight. And for you to receive that, right, that is just an act of grace. And Jesus, as the light of the world, has come to show you more and more of that reality. That we, much like this boy, might say, Lord, I believe, and that we worship him. Friends, grace is all we have. Grace is all we have. And as, as believers in that this morning, as we look at the light of the world who has come into our lives, may we pray and ask God to open our eyes more and more to see his grace, right? to see what he has done for us, how he has truly been cast out so that we may be brought near to the Father forever. Would we humble ourselves and continue to humble ourselves in asking Jesus to open our eyes that we might see him? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Fathers, we thank you for your word to us in John. As we wrestle with these words that uh, not only bring freedom in ways that need to be explored further, but also division, which we probably feel more, would you help us to, to wrestle with that well, to trust you in that? Would you help us to see, though, your grace to us as people who, uh, who couldn't see but now do, but only because of your mercy towards us. And would this lead us into a posture of humility, not just for, for ourselves and how we worship, but, but for those around us, for this community, that they would know the true light of the world, the source and the revealer of all truth, that they would know you, Jesus. We pray this in your name alone. Amen. We turn in your bulletins now to